Apple lies about preventing spying, the FBI whines about us stopping spying, and Kevin excels tools for spying. Also, Bash leaves us crying in our beer. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now, episode 475, recorded October 1st, 2014. Shocked by the shell. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Citrix ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with Citrix ShareFile. Try ShareFile today. For a free 30-day trial, go to sharefile.com, click the microphone, and enter Security Now. And by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payment API, check out the new OneTouch product by Braintree. The fastest, easiest, most secure way to pay an app. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash twit. And by ProXBN. ProXBN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. Save 50% off with a 12-month subscription. Go to ProXBN.com slash twit and use the code SN50 at checkout. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your privacy and security online. I'm Father Robert Ballester, the digital Jesuit in for Leo Laporte, who's currently roaming through Europe. Here with me is the purveyor of truth, knowledge, and justice online. It's Mr. Steve Gibson. Steve, <laughs> it's good to see you again, my friend. Hey, Padre, it's great to be with you again. It's been, uh, we've been anticipating this for some length of time, ever since Leo said that he was taking what he now regards as a too brief vacation. <laughs> he wishes now that, it, you know, that he was doing it, that he was going to be there longer. I've been hearing him grumble about, ah, yeah, we're only, we're going to, I know, I'm going to be here for twit on Sunday and then back for twit on the following Sunday. So he's missing no twits. He has been pre-recording his tech guy show on the weekends in order to be able to have that happen. Uh, yeah. So you and I get to do this today and it's a, like an amazing opportunity. Um, I did send Leo email uh, I guess like the middle of last week to apprise him of something that we'll be talking about at the top of the show, which is the result of Mozilla briefly switching their Mozilla.org certs to SHA-256 and then realizing the error of their ways and switching back. And so, you know, in the show, there's a lot of week-to-week continuity. And so... I realized that, you know, Leo is going to miss a lot of the conversation that is happening this week. And in pa- when that's happened before, I found myself saying, oh, wait, yeah, you don't know about that. And so so I was a little preemptive this time. But, uh, you know, we couldn't have a, a more fun topic because I started getting tweets Wednesday of last week when the news of shell shock broke. Uh, people saying, wait, uh you just did security now. We, we, we need another one right now. And I said, eh. you know, and actually it's been good that it's been a week because there's really been nothing individuals had to do. Um, largely, this was a function, you know, made, uh, it had uh, the greatest impact against Internet connected servers of various sorts. 
Um, and it's taken a week for sort of things to settle down and for us to know better where we stand. So I think the timing is uh, probably just about right. I, I actually think it's perfect because one of the things that we see every time a new vulnerability comes up is every network is jumping in to be the first to try to explain it, to try to explain how bad it is. It's really been kind of jumbled this last week. Uh, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's not even a week since the, the exploit was first released to the world. And so many people have gotten it wrong. There have been yeah. many patches that have failed because they don't quite understand the scope of the problem. And so now that yep. we've had a couple of days to look back, I think it's easier to look at it and say, okay, so this is the issue, not this. This is the issue, not that. And uh, thankfully, we have you. So, so, I mean, I'm actually glad that this didn't break on Tuesday because if it was Tuesday, it would have been a rush job. And then we would have to have had to correct errata. Well, and and it is a tricky technical problem. Um, there was there was one um, one person's communication uh, posited that maybe this wasn't actually a bug. That and they demonstrated some some useful some some useful application of processing a command after the function and we'll 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 rewind this and start at the beginning here in a second but the point but but what i was put in mind of was something very controversial from the early days of this podcast the so-called windows metafile bug where in looking at the code that was in windows at the time it looked to me to be deliberate that is not that it was a bug but that at the time, back in a day before there were bad guys, and there actually was such a day, and I think that's where this this same bash problem originated, um, or some of the practices that that th- that ends up being able to exploit this characteristic of of the bash shell. Back in those days, what Microsoft did with the Windows Metafile was they had basically a, they had an interpreter which would interpret the contents of the metafile. But there was one command that said jump into the metafile, meaning take it out of interpretation and into native code execution. And I could easily see a a like the original designer of the Windows metafile saying, you know, it might be handy if we weren't stuck just using the interpreter if we could if the if a metafile could also contain native code now again not something you would ever do in this day and age but back in back in the windows nt days or even earlier than that when the when the original metafile form, format was put together it wasn't that unreasonable and we sort of had that same thing happening with 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 shell shock where where now when we look at it everyone's just uh, oh my god but it's really it's it, it's it it sort of harkens from a time when it it wasn't that crazy to do what is now common practice and now we look at it though with our contemporary understanding of the way exploits are are being found and, and how you know what used to be innocent is now considered of a horrible vulnerability it's like oh uh yeah that's really not so good 
Well, I mean, so. when you consider that the fact that the Bornigan shell was released back in 1989. So, I mean, we're talking about a utility that was created over two decades ago. Before bad guys. Before bad internet. guys. And before we really had a concept of what the internet would be, that you would have yep. you would have your server facing the rest of the world. That that wasn't even in the programmer's idea, mind. And so it makes perfect sense that they would try to make Bash as functional as possible. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm right with you. I don't think this is a bug. I think this was something that someone included in the original implementation of Bash yep. as yep. something that if, you know what, if we weren't connected to networks that we didn't trust, it would be very useful. Yep. Uh, and... Unfortunately, we've continued using the same tool, and it has vulnerabilities. I mean, can you imagine if we were still using Microsoft DOS from 1989 as our primary way to communicate with the outside world? You, you wouldn't do it. Uh, and there were people people crying foul saying, oh, there's so many bugs, so many exploits, so many ways for someone to destroy your system. And it's, well, yeah, of course, because that's not what it was made for. Right. Right. So, the, But the question now becomes, even if this is not a bug, even if this is intentional, uh, why are we still using it? Well, let's talk about that. We've got some news to cover also. Uh, we'll, t we'll talk briefly about Apple's uh, OS X update, which they uh, put up yesterday, but not with a great deal of emergency. Um, also, we, we, some news has come to light about the iOS 8 MAC address randomization that turns out to be almost next to worthless. We were excited about it when we heard about it. it seemed like a cool thing that they had done to iOS 8. Turns out it's eh, they've really overblown what they're doing. Also, I wanted to chat with you a little bit about what's been in the news this week relative to uh, the head of the FBI <laughs> complaining now about the fact that that you know corporations have adjusted. As we knew they would, we talked about this a year ago. Uh, the Snowden revelations and the, you know, the 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 sense we've had that um, that there's been some stretching of the U.S. Constitution. I do want to talk about uh, Mozilla's experience with SHA-256 and a friend of ours. I don't know if you ever had a chance to meet Kevin Mitnick, but Leo and I both know him pretty well. And it turns out he's opened an a uh, what he calls the absolute zero-day exploit exchange. So buying and selling zero-day exploits. So we've got that to cover, and then we're going to do uh, lots of deep, a deep dive into uh, shell shock. So in other news, no, uh, no real news this week. Yeah, it, it was a sle sleepy week. I mean, any of those stories, so, uh, iOS 8, uh, <laughs> Mitnick opening up the zero-day corner store, or shell shock could be the main story any other week. The fact that we've got them all in the same week, uh, something's weird happening, Steve. I, I don't know what's perfect going on. time. Perfect time to have you. Perfect storm. Uh, where do you want to start? Well, um, uh, at the top of the uh, of of the notes, I, I always try to put a picture now in the show notes because I I post them online. I tweet the URL, although it it's it never changes except the number increments. But someone sent me this. I think it was yesterday, and I just loved it. It's a picture of an airport security door keypad <laughs> and the trick is can we guess the number and i'd really i just love this because for, for for those who can't see uh it's the it's a four by uh, a three by four keypad uh this you know the the number uh the number 
style pad w- w- with a star and a and a I don't know what that is down in the lower right. Normally it's a pound sign, but the point is that this it it's it teaches us a lesson about the nature of security because on the first day this was installed, it looked perfect. Now there are only four buttons that almost have the paint rubbed off of them. And we know why. We know it's because those are the ones that are being pushed. And they happen to be three, four, five, and six. So not only do we know absolutely which buttons contain the code, but I'd even wager that this that this door opens with three, four, five, six. Because again, yeah, you know, in the beginning, I'm sure it, it, you know, no one would be able to guess that it would be three, four, five, six. They want to make it easy to remember. Um, and so not some random combination of numbers. And if all, if, if, you know, when the pad was first installed, you'd have no clue. Now you look at this and clearly the three, the four, the five, and the six are the most often pressed buttons there is. So, or there are. <laughs> so it's clearly what the code is. Anyway, although you, you could just... combine that picture with a little bit of wear analysis. Uh, Jemmerby, if you go back to the picture, uh, I remember someone was trying to tell me, uh, similar to this, if you look at the way that the door jam is shaped, someone would probably be opening it with their right hand, which means they're they're probably going to rest against the side of the keypad. Uh, looking at where the wear is actually happening on the key, so on the lower right-hand corner of the four, on the lower left-hand corner of the six, and top of the five, and then dead center on the three, it could be four, five, six, three, because that's where your fingers would naturally go if you were resting your hand on the side yeah. of the of the jam. Good point. Uh, Good point. But yeah, I mean, the fact that you can, you, I mean, even if you had to do complete guesses, uh, you yes. go from a 12-key keypad to a four-key keypad. Yes. That's just <laughs> Now I I have to look through through airports to see how many of those doors look like that. <laughs> anyway, I loved it cuz it's just a a classic failure of security, something that starts out seeming like a good idea, you know, sort of like a fence that just sort of decays and falls apart. And it's like even the cows are looking at it thinking, you know, if I were if I really wanted to go anywhere, the, this fence would no longer keep me in. So but offenses only keep honest people honest, right? So keypads aren't really going to keep you out if you really want to get in there. And lazy cows in. And lazy cows in. Okay, so um, support.apple.com slash downloads will take all of our Mac listeners to Apple's current support page. And the first item in the upper left at the time of this recording, support apple.com slash downloads is Apple's apparently optional offer to patch OS X, OS 10, sorry, uh, for the shell shock bug. So I wanted to put that at the top of the show. This requires no reboot. It's a tiny download. It's like three and a half meg or something. Uh, so it is easy to get You've, you know, installed the way you install any Mac app. It just says, okay, I'm going. You have to give it your password, of course. And then it fixes itself and it says, I'm done. So um, it's not a crucial emergency because, because 
it's not going to be an exposure that most Mac users have. But now, but essentially, one way to look at this, and we'll we'll come back around to this for the for the main topic of the show uh, for during our second half. But a way to look at the whole thing is that there is there is now in every probably somewhere in every unix system a component that could be invoked in a way that could give the invoker more control over the system than its owner wants so that component should be removed it's you know it's just not good to have it there. It's not. It's it's the sort of thing where you don't want to you don't want to set up intrusion detection systems on your front lines to hopefully block any incoming known exploit because this thing is going to be with us for a long time, and it is it already it is it's there's just <laughs> it's just been a flood of internet traffic exploit, you know, trying to exploit this across the entire internet. There have been white hat hackers who've been scanning for it in order to get some sense for it, but a flood of exploits against random IP addresses. Everybody is picking this up who is looking at their incoming traffic. So, so sooner or later, I imagine maybe with the next major update, Apple will include this just fixing this but for our listeners who are more security conscious because you don't it's it's small quick easy to do requires no reboot when you've got os 10 running just go to support.apple.com slash downloads and fix this remove this problem from the systems that you're responsible for Uh, again not probably an emergency it doesn't look like the typically configured mac has a vulnerability. The only way I was ever concerned was there were some reports and they were confirmed of a malicious DHCP server being able to use the DHCP client in a Mac to invoke the shell and and cause a problem. And so that would have affected people who to, and DHCP is the dynamic host configuration protocol. It's the get. It, it's the thing that the system uses when when it comes up or when the network connects to obtain an IP address from the network. And and the, again, the nature of the way some of these have been implemented did invoke the shell. And so, if you were on a malicious network, that is a network with a malicious DHCP server, which sort of, you know, hasn't been a problem in the past because DHCP wasn't vulnerable. Again, th- this is the this is a perfect example of the many different subtle ways that that this this could still get you in the future. So it, it's worth removing it. I actually read a report from Encapsula. They've been a guest on one of my other shows this week in Enterprise Tech. And they were saying how just on the domains that they protect – so that's about, uh, what, uh, 4,115 domains. They've seen since since the attack, and this was up to Monday, uh, uh, since the attack was released, about 217,000 attempts to exploit Bash. 
Uh, and their, their, their guesstimation is that there's probably been about a billion attempts so far. Uh, I believe they're going to come on this Friday on a special edition of Twilight to, to show us what a stream of bash exploit attempts actually looks like. Uh, that, that actually should be some pretty decent TV. Cool. I have that also at the end of our notes uh, in today's show notes is uh, from from FireEye. They did a an analysis and I grabbed samples of the strings that they're seeing. And we'll we'll be talking about that uh, here in in, uh, about an hour. Um, So we were excited when we learned that Mac addresses were going to be randomized by iOS 8 devices when they were not connected to a Wi-Fi uh, network, so the, which seemed like a fabulous idea. Before iOS 8, the, your phone or your pads that has Wi-Fi turned on and you know, as you're roaming around, you're in stores and malls and so forth, it's always scanning probing for networks that it may know. And and traditionally, it's been giving out its MAC address. The MAC address is supposed to be a globally unique 48-bit identifier, globally unique so because it has to be unique on a single Ethernet network. And since you never know which devices may also be on the network with you, you don't – and – it has to be unique or you'll have a MAC address collision. And those of us who've ever played with Ethernet networks extensively know that that's not a good thing to have. Um, so they make them all unique. Well, what this meant was that essentially you were a beacon as you walked among stores and in malls and movie theaters and so forth, basically broadcasting a token that represented you. So the idea that Apple was going to respond to this and make them random until you actually connected. First of all, that's a very clever hack. So the moment you hear about it, it's like, hey, that's very nice. Turns out, no. Um, uh, Based on some analysis performed by uh, Dick Arnott at imore.com, who took a much closer look at iOS 8's Mac randomization, it is almost never active. That is, only when the phone is in a deep sleep state, for whatever reason, is this in effect. And like doing any, like when when the phone awakens out of deep sleep, even with the screen still dark to receive push email, then it's not randomizing the Mac. Um, Anytime anything rouses it in any way, it returns to its fixed Mac. Now, I don't know why, because the hack that they originally described seems entirely feasible. So I hope they get some pressure to, like, make this better. Maybe they couldn't do it for architectural reasons. Maybe there was a glitch. Maybe they were someone was lazy and they didn't care enough to, to do it as well as they could have. I haven't looked at it closely enough to understand why. So my upset, I mean, it's like, 
my, my upset is that they told us something which is not true. And that's the one thing I don't want. It's like, don't, it, it's fine if you're, if you're going to offer us something that's weak, but better than nothing, but don't advertise it as your MAC address is always random until you're connected. That's not factually true. And, and you know, Apple's on this big campaign now about them not collecting data and all, and exactly, there's the page, and privacy is built in and rah-rah. And if you scroll that page down, I think to the second to the last item on the page, uh, you'll, you'll see their their statement. They said, when you're running out, uh, when you're out running errands with your phone in your pocket, Wi-Fi hotspots have the ability to track your movements and behavior by scanning your Wi-Fi MAC address. A MAC address is a string of characters that uniquely identifies your device on a network. With iOS 8, we've introduced an innovative feature designed to protect your privacy by randomizing your device's MAC address when the device is passively scanning for Wi-Fi networks. Not true. Because your MAC address now changes when you're not connected to a network, not always true, it can't be used to persistently track you, not true. This is in line with Apple's industry-leading effort to do away with persistent identifiers and is unique to iOS devices. So my problem is that's a lie. That, that's a complete mischaracterization of a feature that they're touting. So they've got to fix this. Either tell us the truth or make it true. It would be great if they could make it true. Uh, uh, again, I'm I'm only annoyed that that based on Nick's reporting, uh, this is almost never true. Right. It is. It, it's. I mean, you could make it true, but you might as well just turn off Wi-Fi. I mean, you 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 know, because our phones and devices are always coming out of a deep slumber to see to look around and see what's going on to receive push connections to receive text messages to do everything that they're doing while they're you know operating in the background all of those events drop this out of mac address randomization so maybe there's an architectural limitation if so they should have just kept quiet because it's useless the way it is now and i'm obviously you can tell i'm really annoyed because it's like just don't lie Lying is not what you want to do if you want to convince us that, for example, you can't listen in on our iMessage sessions. You've said that, too, and I don't believe that. So You know, the only time that this would actually work is if your smartphone wasn't acting like a smartphone. I mean, the whole idea behind carrying your phone with you is that it's going to be able to notify you when something important is happening. You're getting an email. You're getting an iMessage. Well, any of those events is automatically going to put the phone in a mode where this isn't going to be applicable right but even then you know it what it sounds like to me is when, when i heard about this i thought oh cool feature actually i'd, I'd yes. really like to see that i thought apple got yes. it right uh but this sounds as if this was just a pr thing uh, some pr person was say, talking to an engineer saying well what are some of the new features that you're working on and they heard privacy they said great we'll sell that uh and the problem with doing this and and yes you you said this much more passionate passionately than i have is that if you try to sell people on security features that turn off not to be security features, right. then the security features you actually have, I have no reason to trust you that they actually work. Exactly. Exactly. And so, I mean, they've 
they've sold something. They, they've said, you basically, you can no longer be tracked with your MAC address. That's not true. That is, there's a, you cannot be tracked until you connect to a network. Not true, period. Now, it's also been noted that what the MAC is doing is also transmitting a bunch of SSIDs. That is, there's a fixed list of SSIDs that it is that it's got in its beacon, and that is that's not subject to change even when the MAC address is randomized. So there's still persistent sticky stuff which can be used, uh, but you know not globally the way the device's MAC address can be. I mean that really the MAC address is a nasty global tracking item and. We were led to believe they'd fixed that. They didn't fix it, and they told us they did. Right. So. And I think that's the biggest problem because people should turn it off. If you really don't want to be tracked, your phone can't be emanating anything. I'm not just talking about the MAC address. That's a very good You've got point. to put it into just, airplane mode. Everything yes. shuts off. Cell tower connectivity gives you, I mean, in all, you know, all the movies now, that's how they're localizing people is, is you know, checking their cell towers, which ones they're connected to. Uh. Yeah, and when, when, really. you, when you start sacrificing the integrity of your security solutions in order to make some PR hay, uh, I, I worry. And, and this is not just Apple. I'm sure Google's doing the same thing. Uh, Google's been also doing this big push on, well, our new phones, they can't be tracked and they're NSA proof. I, anytime I hear PR slogans like that, I just I think either your engineers aren't being honest with you or your PR people are lying. It's one of the two. Well, yeah, and in fact, you know, this comes back to the 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 the, the famous comments about iMessage. Uh, uh, Tim uh, made them on uh, what's his name show uh, on PBS. Uh, I can't think of the talk show host. Uh, Charlie uh, Rose. Yes, on Charlie Rose, he he made a big point of saying we cannot intercept iMessages, except we know that they manage the keys. That is, when we send a message out, we, they they provide the, the other the other party's public key, which we use to encrypt messages for the party. So it's true that they cannot decrypt those messages, but since the key management is transparent, nothing prevents them from putting another public key in to the key bag for themselves in which case they will be able to decrypt the message. So so saying that they don't have the keys is different from saying we're unable to give you a key which we could use. They clearly have the ability. So again, I you know, it's like well, I yeah. Yeah, a, a smart a smart person once convinced me that the only way to have true privacy is if you own all the keys. Nobody else yep. has a copy to anything else yep. and if you lose them they're gone. If if yep. Apple is saying, well, we back up your iMessages in case you have to recover them, it kind of – it almost implies, and there's a way to recover your password, and therefore that means there's a way to recover your key. Ergo, it's not secure. Ergo, if they get a warrant and the NSA really wants to look at your iMessages, they're going to be able to. Again, yeah. just you know, be honest with us. Tell us that this is secure as long as we don't get a warrant from the NSA, someone tapping us on the shoulder saying, this is a legal warrant. You need to turn over your data. Yeah, or tell uh, you know that your MAC address is randomized as long as your phone is off. Right, right. Although <laughs> the, the people in the chat room, uh, they're, they're good. They they recalled that case. Do you remember uh, 
this might actually have been before the iPhone was released. Uh, there was uh, was an, an FBI operation where they were able to listen in on some mafia folk in New York, even though a BlackBerry was off, because they were able to turn the BlackBerry back on without it looking like it was on, and they were able to listen into the microphone. Um, and so it's you know now that's conspiracy huh. theory. It's wait a minute. So unless yeah. I can take the battery out of my phone, exactly. I can't ever assume that it's off. And gee, none of these uh, Apple devices hmm. have removable batteries. Although I hmm. hear that if you bend the six plus, it, it <laughs> no longer it can't listen in anymore. So maybe that's actually a security feature they couldn't tell you about. Well, okay, so uh, we have to talk about because this was made a, a bunch of news this week, and, and I've and I I know you'll be you'll have you'll you'll enjoy talking about it with me. Uh, that uh, James Comey explained that he was very concerned about new Apple and Google privacy features. Um, He said that he was concerned that the two companies are, quote, marketing something expressly to allow people to place themselves above the law. And uh, I heard in... uh, 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 in the news podcast just before this one, um, uh, they were talking about this and noting, I mean, basically that this was a reaction which we predicted a year ago uh, in the wake of the Snowden revolution uh, revelations, I guess almost a year ago, um, that, you know, we have the technology to, to absolutely lock this stuff down. And there, it'll take a while for it to get deployed. But once it has, it's game over for the intelligence agencies. You know, this is, this is not an insolvable problem if we choose to solve the problem. And, you know, the, the argument is, you know, as we've been covering all the Snowden stuff, these companies were begging to be allowed to disclose what they'd been compelled to do because without being able to do that – Consumers were fearing the worst, and they were not allowed even to tell the truth, even to 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 like say how you know give give a a number of requests that they had honored and so forth, as if as if a number was actually a national security issue. I mean, basically, the federal government has, I think, by any measure, pushed their position way too far, and so now they're complaining when. The technology companies have reacted, giving their customers what their customers want, and which, unfortunately, for law enforcement, is all too readily possible. I'm going to play minor devil's advocate here. I don't believe this. I I believe in privacy. I believe that you own your data. I believe that if, if you take the steps and are willing to put the resources into locking down your information, then it should be locked down. Take a step back. And let's let's go before the Snowden revelations. You could honestly argue in a forum without some major lash lash out that the government had the right in extreme cases to be able to read communications with a warrant. I, I think most of us would have actually said, OK, yeah, that, that makes sense. In fact, he mentions it when, when he's testifying. He's saying, look, what uh, sh- there should never be a closet that's locked completely from us if we need yep. it in order to recover a, a say a kidnap victim or stop a terrorist activity then then most people would say yeah the problem is and, and you pointed this out is 
the government has so far overstepped that we're no longer willing to even give them that little leeway. We're saying, look, we were willing to give you the extreme circumstances clause, but you treated it as if everything was an extreme circumstance. Yeah. So again, it, it, it kind of harkens back to the Apple situation. Why would I trust you? Why would I believe you? If you're going to cry wolf every single time and then tell me it's for my own good, I'm just going to stop trusting you. I'm going to lock everything away. Well, yes, and I completely agree. If there was a facility which which under a warrant allowed this, you know, I mean, that's the way our system has functioned like from its founding and it's the it's the issue of the judge and the warrant which was which has been explicitly bypassed all of this well that's why it's called warrantless wiretapping um and the you know the argument is like you know well tap it now because we we need the information now we don't have time to get a warrant and 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 similar things i mean we've been hearing about basically these constitutional protections just being ignored. I mean, and the fact, for example, that simply by calling someone a terrorist, they can be locked up without with, and all of their civil rights suspended. I mean, I, again, I understand the, the 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 law enforcement argument for the instance that you can create that demonstrates the necessity. But now the country is subjecting its entire population to, to that argument. Um, en masse. And that wasn't the way the system was designed. And of course, the problem is, and, and, and in fact, there was a story that I ran across, I don't have it uh, in my notes today, that it, it, it just flew by like two days ago, saying that the Chinese government was found leveraging and abusing some ability that Google had to to decrypt or monitor its networks somewhere. And, and, and so th th this was a, a demonstrated example of what is the concern, and that is if there's a backdoor, it won't only be opened under warrant by law enforcement. It's inherently able to be opened by others. And... And, you know, that, that's a concern, too. And that's the plot of every hacking movie ever <laughs> that we always put in black back doors when we program a system. Uh, right. Let, let me ask you this. If, if we were to move to a perfect security system in which everyone had their own keys and they were locked into their own devices and the government couldn't access them in a feasibly – a technologically feasible way, you could – Say and you'd be protected under your Fifth Amendment rights. I don't remember my password. They can't. They can't persecute you and prosecute you if you say you don't remember your password. But if you say locked down all your devices with your fingerprint, yep, they could compel you to touch the fingerprint reader. Yes, yep, and, and that's and, yes, perfectly and, within law. Yes, and in the recent uh, court cases that we've seen, uh, it's been. If it's something you know, you cannot be compelled. That's considered testimony against your own interests. And and fifth, as you said, the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution protects us from divulging that. But uh, if it is something physical, a physical key or a fingerprint, then you can be compelled to supply that. I, yeah. the, the first time I heard about this, uh, do you remember those little sensors that were available for PCs, the URU sensors? 
It was the yeah. first time you had a low-cost, relatively accurate sensor that you could plug in via USB and get uh, uh, you know encryption for pretty much everything. I was really big into that until we we had a Jesuit who was a lawyer in the community, and he said, you know, that actually wouldn't protect you from search and seizure. That's a physical item. They could compel you to push, push your finger on that, that reader if you're actually concerned about uh, having your, your information snooped on by law enforcement agencies. That's not the best way to do it. Uh, yeah. And surprise, you know, 15 years later, it's actually still relevant. Okay, so Ugh. this was really interesting. We talked a couple weeks ago about uh, what I consider to be Google's uh, heavy-handed mistake in – in announcing that starting next month, now we're on, this is October 1st, so in November, they're going to accelerate the deprecation of what they consider to be unsafe security certificates, web, web server identity certificates signed by SHA-1. They're, they're saying that the SHA-1 signature is is no longer strong enough to protect us. And Microsoft has already said they're going to stop honoring them in, in starting in 2017. That's the hard deadline that the industry has accepted. We, we received that information from Microsoft back in November of 2013, so almost a year ago, and nobody complained. That gave us... That gave us all of 14, 15, and 16, three years to, to know that SHA-1 would be no longer supported by Microsoft. And Microsoft is a, is, is a large enough presence that that effectively means no one else can use them effectively. So um, Google decided to just be preemptive, to, to march this way forward starting next month. And in a series of releases of Chrome, starting with 39, then, then 40, then 41, they're going to incrementally alarm their Chrome users about the certificates that sites are using now that, are, that have certificates signed using the SHA-1 hash, even though they are signing all of their properties, all of the Google uh, servers are now signed with SHA-1. They're not changing that. There's, there's no indication that they are. And in fact, now we know you can't really. I loved this little bit that I saw in a, in, in a, uh, on, on Mozilla.org under Bugzilla. Two guys uh, in a dialogue chatting about Mozilla's attempt to switch their servers over to SHA-256 SHA today. Someone named Jake Mall first posted, SHA-2 certs on www.mozilla.org cost us around 145,000 Firefox downloads per week. Um, Chris, I, I have a typo on my notes. It's Chris Moore said, yes, Please don't change SSL certs on www.mozilla.org without checking with www or Keyprod, I guess two people uh, that, that are known, as we killed one million downloads recently by switching to SHA2. 
a lot of the world is still running old browsers and come to our website to get Firefox. Jake replies, let's reissue the cert for www.mozilla.org as SHA-1 expiring 2015-12-31. That gives us the maximum amount of time to support old users without breaking Chrome or IE. At that time, we may just have to start trying to detect WinXP users, ideally just pre-SP3, but that seems like it would be hard to detect, and force them to a non-SSL connection. He writes, sucks, but better than giving them an error and making it impossible for them to download Firefox. Firefox is a great fix for them because it ships with its own SSL stack and thus avoids the underlying OS limitation. And Chris finishes saying, let's keep SHA-1 on www.mozilla.org until we find a better solution. Switching to SHA-2 will kill 5% of our downloads, and that has a direct impact on ongoing Firefox usage unless we have a better solution to deal with legacy browsers. Let's start the discussion now in a separate bug on how to handle legacy browsers before December 2015. But Steve, and in fact, wait a minute. I mean, I understand why they want to do this. This was a bit of a panic on their part. But doesn't this just push the problem down the road? I mean, aren't we going to run into this in December 2015 again? Because as far as handling the problem, it's basically you have to upgrade your browser. Um, um, okay, so XP pre-service pack 3 has no knowledge of SHA-256. So, and it turns out there, believe it or not, I mean, these are the users apparently, 5% of the people visiting Mozilla.org have a pre um, X, a, a pre-service pack three version of Windows XP. Windows XP and Chrome on Windows and IE on Windows all use the 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 OS native um, cryptographic stack. So IE and Chrome on Windows pre-service pack three cannot connect to any web server signed with SHA-256. Right. Mozilla. Which, which is why uh, Firefox is perfect for them because it has its own stack. But Precisely. I, I mean, if you, look at, if you look at Windows usage numbers, especially for XP, they're not going down nearly as fast as we thought they might. You know, even though it's been deprecated, it's end of life, Windows XP is still running strong. So it, right. it, it, gives, it gets me back to that point, which is, well, at the end of 2015... The people who are using XP now are probably still going to be using XP. If they haven't switched, it means they're not interested in switching. Right. So you're going to run into this again, right? That's yes, but it's more than two years from now. We have all of we have, uh, you know. I mean, it, it it's plenty of time. So, um, so, you know, er, I mean, even the other uh, certificate authorities, or well, actually, all the certificate authorities, were really upset. The Cloudflare people were really upset because this meant that they had to do a mass rekeying with very little notice. The, the argument was, look, you know, basically Google just dropped the bomb and and said everybody must change or we're going to start 
we're going to start penalizing sites that don't. Now what we see is sites themselves will be penalized because the world isn't ready to change. And so my position is, yes, it is only kicking the can down the road, but it's another two years for of, of, of sites experimenting like this and beginning to come up with solutions to push people up to SHA 256, especially when Google themselves are not switching. They can't switch because they don't want the, the, the uh, lack of connectivity that we that the Mozilla experiment demonstrates you get today. Yeah, so it's a kick down the road, but it's a really long kick. And maybe in two years, all those XP machines will die. <laughs> well, I guess my feeling is I won't feel the sympathy for them in two years that I do today. They will, if nothing else, have had plenty of notice. This just isn't sufficient notice. Right. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. So it's it's all about timing. I mean, this I really, yes. you could just wait for this problem to organically go away uh, rather than forcing a, a major chain that's, that's going to have a great impact on the people who are actually supporting your solution. Yeah. And I mean, and and I I can see Chrome being proactive maybe during 2016 for example we, we we've already established a hard deadline thanks to microsoft on on <coughs> excuse me at the beginning of 2017 so it would be beautiful during 2016 leading you know for the year leading up to that for chrome to start warning people and 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 thus warning the sites through their visitors, that this is looming. But Chrome is doing that in 2014. They're doing it this year. They're doing it next month. They're starting this. So They're overachievers. <laughs> yeah. So um, I did talk about Ke our friend Kevin Mitnick. Uh, oh, wait, I know but Steve, Kevin before we get there, before we get there, you know, while uh, we are talking about encryption and security, um, I'm hoping maybe we could mention a friend of the show because they help to do the same thing with the files that you might be sharing. If you've yeah. ever worried about someone peeking in on your files, well, we've got ShareFile by Citrix. Uh, th that's right. Now, let's talk about what ShareFile is. Uh, a lot of other programs that do syncing and sharing of files, are, are, are they're fantastic. They're good. But they don't have at their core this idea of securely sharing files, making sure you know where, that's file, where that file is going, who it's going to, and whether or not it's been opened. And that's what ShareFile by Citrix is all about. Uh, of course, businesses need to share. They need to use some sorts of attachments, documents, spreadsheets, PowerPoints, contracts, photos, and more. And we need that information to be received. In other words, you have to make sure that the people who are supposed to get the information that you're sending to them actually open the attachments. They read the email. They read the document. They look at the spreadsheet. But with file size restrictions, with bounce backs, with security breaches and clogged inboxes, it doesn't always happen. It's, in this day and age, with, with so much data going back and forth, can you truly guarantee that that person in receiving or that person down in the engineering department is going to get your memo? You can if you're using Citrix ShareFile. Citrix ShareFile sends your attachments as secure links so that you can send files of almost any size with the highest degree of security. And you receive notifications as to who is downloading your files and when. So you can say, look, no, I know that you read this file because you opened it last week at, at 4.32 p.m. Citrix ShareFile is easy to use and it integrates into any business, no matter what your business model may be. Plus, with Citrix ShareFile, 
you can access files from anywhere, from your laptop, your tablet, or your smartphone, securely. Now, we use Citrix ShareFile here at the BrickHouse, again, because we, we demand a bit more well, precision out of the way that we share documents back and forth. We want to be able to know that all the hosts are up to date with the latest advertisers. We want to know that the people who are handling the graphics have actually opened up the, the buys so that we know that the things will be ready. The assets will be in the TriCaster when we go to, go to show. Well, with Citrix ShareFile, not only do we have a confirmation that the file's been read, but they can confirm back to us. And, and they can make sure that we understand that the data has been received. It's, folks, it's just a better way of doing business. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to try Citrix ShareFile today. They've got a free 30-day special offer for listeners of Security Now. Go to sharefile.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter the code SECURITYNOW. That's sharefile.com and type in the code security now. And we thank Citrix Sharefile for their support of Security Now. Oh, uh, Steve. Kevin Mitnick. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I guess they, it, the world considers him, uh, or at least in the past, one of the most notorious hackers. Uh, he was jailed, I think, for about four and a half years. He spent many months in solitary confinement. Um, I, there were a lot of people who were upset with the way Kevin was treated. There were there were, there was like an, an industry of of free Kevin T-shirts and mugs and things. Um, and Leo and I both know him. We've met him. He's really a nice guy. I mean, he's like he's really a nice guy. And so. Uh, <sighs> I don't quite understand what's happened here. Um, I guess just it might just be that he wants to make some money. Um, but he announced that he is going to start selling zero-day exploits to, quote, discerning government and corporate buyers. Um, these will sell for no less than $100,000 each. Um, and although Kevin's company... Uh, mitniksecurity.com employs its own hackers apparently to dredge up some of these. Um, mostly, he will he's serving as an exchange, um, uh, a zero-day exploit reseller, purchasing exploits from those who discover them and reselling them to his customers. Um, uh I, I don't know. I'm just sort of at a loss. Uh, it just seems, you know, he was regarded as, I think he was wrongfully regarded as a black hat. Then he sort of was wearing a white hat for a long time. Uh, and I'm afraid now it's sort of gone to dark gray because, I don't know, this this uh, seems to sort of endorse the notion of zero-day exploits and and... Uh, I mean, it it gives entities a means of acquiring them. Uh, there, there are different things you can do. You can sign up to be on a notification list so that I guess if you uh, if you were Microsoft and some and they acquire zero day exploit for Windows, Microsoft will have some notification means. The problem is, that that dramatically reduces its resale value. So it's against Mitnick Security's interest to 
to notify Microsoft because then Microsoft can patch it. And what you the only reason to buy a zero-day exploit is either to preemptively patch a problem, and $100,000 is a lot of money to pay for that. Seems to me the market is clearly in exploits which are going to be used as, you know, maliciously or or for, for surveillance, you know, somebody who has deep pockets is going to be paying $100,000 for zero-day exploits, and they're going to want the largest window of exploitability possible, which means there's got to be something in the agreement saying that that this will be kept absolutely secret until something. So anyway, uh, it's an interesting site, if anyone's interested. Um he calls it the Absolute Zero Day Exploit Exchange at mitniksecurity.com. Uh, and there's a lot more to read about it for anyone who's interested. I just thought it was like, you know, I mean, interesting and, you know, maybe a little troubling. Can I pay for the zero days with Bitcoin? And that's really all. <laughs> now, let's get serious here for a second. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how the, the security researcher field has traditionally worked. Uh, and I know plenty of security researchers. In fact, one of the uh, the ones I've been following recently have Have you met a man, a man by the name of Dan Gear? He was the name I know. Yeah, he was the keynote speaker at uh, Black Hat this year. Okay, um, that, yeah, that's I'll, why I know. I'll talk name. about some of his his theories a little bit later because that actually ties in the Mitnick. But uh, you know, if you're a security researcher, especially if you're a, a sponsored security researcher, so you work for one of the the main research companies. Typically, you look for these these zero dates. You look for these bugs. You publish your report. So you show exactly how it's used. You show exploit code. Demonstrate you, it. You demonstrate it. You offer it to the company that's vulnerable so that they can patch it. And then you make your money off of selling your consultancy to companies to say, look, are, are you sure you're patched? We can do all of your vulnerability testing. We've developed the software that will allow us to look through all your systems and tell you where you are and are not vulnerable. And, and typically, if your security research company is able to find these zero-day exploits or these bugs in a timely fashion, then you make a decent amount of money. That's security researcher. Yep. What Kevin Mitnick is doing is arm supplier because <laughs> there is no disclosure. There is There is none of this old world I'm researching so that I can make the world a better place. It's no, I'm researching I, so I get paid. Yes. Uh, I mean, and you, you, you touched on this. No one's going to pay $100,000 except a company trying to exploit another company or a government trying to exploit another government or, right. or its own people. Uh, and, you know, it, it really, you know him. I don't, I don't know him except by reputation. But I've always seen Kevin Mitnick as sort of like he's the antihero. You know, he's the guy who fought the government. He got away with it. And he, you know, smirk, smirk. He's still doing what he's doing. Uh, yeah. This just it feels so wrong. Yeah, um, it, it, it's it's sad. I mean, I don't I I'm this is not the Kevin that I remember. So, I again, I like I said, I don't know what happened. Uh, wow. Yeah. At, at Black Hat, I, I love your analogy. I think arm supplier yeah. is. It's absolutely apropos because, you know, we're no longer in a world where the Internet is optional and and where the, the, the notion of cyber warfare is an is an abstraction. I mean, it is surprisingly real. I, I'm st I'm lagging behind a little bit. I'm a little bit more still old school where it's like, oh, come on, you know, really. But yeah, really. Uh, at, at Black Hat uh, 2014, uh, Dan Gear made a statement that, that sent 
chuckles and then some nervous chuckles through the audience. And that was he thought that the federal U.S. federal government should actually buy up zero day exploits and then release them. That should be that should be part of their job. Their, their part of their job should be to, to keep the infrastructure of communications safe. And if that meant buying up zero day, zero day exploits from hackers who would otherwise exploit them, you know, basically give their money on the front end and rather than on the back end, then they should they should make that part of the responsibilities. It's interesting that uh, that, I, you know, because I know Kevin was there. I'm wondering if he heard this and said, OK, that's not a bad idea. How about this? We'll sell it to you. Uh, and if you're a good government, you'll give it to your people. You know, one of the one of the oddities of the software industry that has existed from day one is the license agreement that says we're a company selling a license to use our software. You're going to pay us money to do so, but we're not going to give you any warranty of any sort over its merchantability or fitness for use or the fact that it has or has not any bugs. So, I mean, and, and you know, car companies would love to have that deal. So would, you know, drug manufacturers and all kinds of other commercial enterprises that are, are producing property and intellectual property. Somehow the software business is, has always had this hold us harmless clause in their license. And, they're, and I guess as a, they're able to do it because of the power that they inherently have. Microsoft was in a position to say, okay, so don't use DOS. Good luck. Don't use Windows. Good luck. Um, you know, you had no choice except to relinquish all right. But it, it's weird to, to – to, here we are in, in, a, in a situation where – and this comes from what, from what you were saying – that a company is a commercial company with incredible amount of cash like Microsoft is producing a series of operating systems and – programs, Internet Explorer, Office, you know, Outlook Express, oh my Lord, that like is completely vulnerable for years, creating all kinds of damage. And then and then people are suggesting, well, you know, maybe the federal government should further inoculate them by purchasing the bugs in their code and selling the solutions back to them. It's just like what what has happened? How how does any of this make any sense? How it's just so upside down. But that's the deal that software's always had is just you know a zero liability situation. It's it's I mean you know nobody else has it. That's actually another point that uh, Dan Gear made in his talk, which is he wanted accountability for security. Uh, specifically, uh-huh. he said, look, we understand that developers are going to have bugs. Bugs are part of programming. But he believed in a world with total transparency. He wanted zero transparent failure. So when you have a software solution that fails, it is your responsibility to make sure that people know about it as soon as possible. Um, and, you know, that's that's shining the light on zero days. Zero days don't exist if people aren't afraid to tell people that, yeah, we failed. Um, yeah. Yeah, kind of strange. Now, did you did you see the little shot that uh, Kevin Mitnick took? Uh, if you look at the uh, the Wired story, there was a a security researcher. Uh, do you know Christopher Segoyan? Oh yeah, of course, yeah, of course. Yeah, he's a big, big uh, um, uh, voice against the use of zero day exploits. Yes, uh, and you know, yeah. he he fired off a kind of a snarky tweet, and he said, "Well, look, if you're going to sell zero day, which I don't recommend, 
uh, exploits. Using a convicted felon as a broker, well, that seems <laughs> unnecessarily risky. And uh, Mitnick shot back in typical Mitnick form. My clients may use them to monitor your activities. How do you like them apples, Chris? So, mm. <laughs> you know, and again, that kind of it breaks my vision of what what Mitnick is. I, I yeah, I didn't see him like this kind of a person. I'm, I'm wondering, did, did you did you nail it? He he just wants to get paid. It's like I've been I doing just, this I, game for the longest time. It's time for me to actually be comfortable. Yep, cash in. Oh. Yeah, and I think he's he's wanting to leverage his celebrity. You know, he certainly has celebrity. Everyone knows the name Kevin Mitnick, so he just figures, hey, you know, I I'm going to get paid. Yeah, he does have a book uh, coming out, not quite published, called The Art of Invisibility, and it was it was described. I don't know what, what copywriter wrote this, but it says the world's most famous hacker reveals the secrets on how citizens and consumers can stay connected and on the grid safely and securely by using cloaking and countermeasures in in today's era of big brother and big data. And it's like, yes, unless they buy any of the author's zero days and use them again. Uh, I think we already actually talked about how you stay secure. Turn off your phone. Don't ever yep. get on the Internet. That's about it. That's the only yep. way you stay secure. Oh, and by the way, don't get in a car that goes anywhere near a security camera, a traffic cam, or a license plate cam. Uh, and also don't call anyone on the phone and don't send any mail. You and probably should leave the, your house. And don't use the uh, the uh, the transponders used to uh, fast uh, track. Run, run the fast track. Right. Exactly. The fast which, track. Which, by the way, and- you have no choice anymore. You know that. In the Bay Area, you can't you can't go across a bridge without that. They're not taking tolls on the, the Golden Gate, and they're going to repeat that down the down the chain here. Wow. So in miscellany, I have just one quick little thing. I ran across what I thought was a just a charmingly clever idea. We've talked years ago about the problems of webcams on laptops and now often on desktop machines um, that is of the of the camera staring at you. And my advice, my first advice was just take a small piece of the sticky top of a post-it note and stick it over the lens. That is, you just don't want this thing staring at you. There are too many past and known ways for that to be used to eavesdrop. In fact, we covered the famous case of an elementary school that was that was loaning these laptops out to their students and the security firm that they were using were, were turning the webcams on in the students' bedrooms in the evening and spying on these these elementary school children. Also so, known as child pornography. Uh, really, if, if I remember really, that case properly. Yeah, really chilling. So, um, and and then one one problem with that advice was that. If the system used the webcam to measure room illumination, then you would be losing the the automatic brightness control. So then the second generation solution was use a piece of the of the frosted scotch tape. That would completely frost the image so nothing would come through yet allow the light through in order to still give you brightness control. Um, somebody came up with just a, 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 a just a simple, elegant 
I just loved it. Solution. I I tweeted it. It's on Kickstarter for only five dollars for anybody who can't do their own. I actually have a fascination with magnets, so I've got all just a huge library of magnets. But yeah, you're showing it now on the screen. It's called Nope. N O P E. And it's Nope Live Free on Kickstarter. So imagine two very thin disc magnets that are stuck to each other. And, you know, they naturally just sort of roll around each other. They're, they're, they're you know, they're, I'm sorry, they're, they're stuck edge to edge, not flat, but, but edge to edge. One of them is sticky, is adhesive on the back. You stick that just to the side of the webcam hole. And then the other one is able to sort of roll around, but easily roll and just sort of stay put. They sort of naturally stay put uh, over the webcam hole. Um, I just, it's just, it's so clean. It's very elegant. If you're a person who never uses your webcam, then yeah, sticky tape probably makes sense. But if you're, you know, like a, a frequent, say, 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 whatever it is you're doing is like several times a day you're using Skype. And then it'd be it'd be nicer to have essentially a cover. We've talked about covers that, that you could slide open and close. This one you just sort of you just sort of roll the other magnet off to the side, opening the shutter essentially, or or bring it closed again. Anyway, just wanted to make sure our listeners knew it was it was it's very simple. Very clean. I mean, you could, if you find a source of magnets, uh, you could just do your own. But anyway, I just, I just really, I thought it was great. So, uh, thank you, Mike uh, Cunningham, for tweeting that and for bringing it to my attention. And uh, uh, and, and the Kickstarter is doing really well because it's just, you know, it's ca- it's capturing people's imagination, saying, "Hey, I, I think that's kind of a cool idea." Yeah, it's simple and it's elegant. It actually looks kind of nice. But Steve, I need something to cover over the microphone. <laughs> I'm actually more concerned about what they'll hear rather than what they'll see because my actually, laptop's that's always a very, closed. <laughs> it's a very good point. Oh, and I and I, sh- I should note that a couple people did wonder whether the magnets were thick enough to interfere with a laptop cover's closure. That is, you know, often laptops do have a gap between the the lid and and, and the bottom, but some of them don't. Some of them come down right down tight. So if you were using it on a laptop, you, because there is some non-zero thickness to these little magnets, you'd want to make sure that it's still going to be compatible with you being able to close your laptop. Otherwise, it's not so convenient. Not so convenient at all. But uh, wait, 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 we've, we've got something big coming up because uh, we, we do have to cover shell shock. Yes. <laughs> yeah. At some point, we're, we're probably going to have to get there. But before we do that, do you mind if I take a little break here to pay some bills? Absolutely. All right. Because, Steve, you know, one of the newest advertisers on the Twit TV network is aimed at my people. My people are the developers. You know, I, I run a show called Coding 101, and developers are always looking for a way to monetize their apps. Well, it's not always easy. If you've ever written an app, you, you know how difficult it can be to find a company that gives you a solution that's easy to use, that's secure, that's reputable, And also that scales. I mean, you can often find companies that do one or two of those things at the same time. But to find a company that does all of them, well, you got to go to Braintree Payments. That's why companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and GitHub have turned to Braintree for payment APIs because it can do all those things. Braintree scaled with these companies from their early stage startups 
to the successful companies that they are today. That means that you can trust Braintree to scale with your business from processing your first dollar to your billionth. By using the Braintree Payment API, you get a full-stack payment solution that supports all payment types that your customers might want to use, including credit cards, debit cards, PayPal, Venmo, Apple Pay, 130 different currencies from around the world, and, and yeah, even Bitcoin. Plus, it does so across all platforms with integrated fraud protection and customer service. Now, you might think that that kind of functionality comes with a hefty development work, but, you know, it's not going to take you weeks or months, or even years, it's going to take you hours. The Braintree Payment API supports Android, iOS, and JavaScript clients with only 10 lines of in-app code. So even if you know nothing about it, you can walk yourself through how to integrate this into your app. They've got SDKs in .NET, Node.js, Java, Perl, PHP, Python, and Ruby, and they give you the code that you need to integrate into your app to be up and running in minutes. You can even call their best-in-class customer service, and you'll get a live person, a real person, who won't just help, but can actually walk you through the procedure of the integration. Of course, an easy-to-use payment system that isn't secure is worthless. I mean, this is security now. We have, we have to consider that. That's why Braintree uses tokens to secure customers' payment information so that credit cards are never passed to a merchant server. What that means is that they're known for their back-end security and merchant protection. And the fact that the user's financial information is never actually stored on your servers means that if you're using Braintree, even if you do get hacked, even if your systems are compromised, you don't have to worry about fraudsters going on a crime spree with your customers' cards because you never had that information in the first place. Braintree is the fastest, easiest, most secure way to pay. But what I think really sets Braintree apart is that it's not just an, a payment API. It's a way to increase your sell through. Braintree is helping solve a huge problem in online commerce, namely that there's a 70% cart abandonment rate, and it's even higher for mobile. By offering one-touch payments for your mobile apps, your customers can check out if they have the PayPal app installed on their phone. Gone are the days of entering fields and sharing credit card information on tiny screens. One and done. Securely, easily, quickly. And with much less risk of a customer giving up on a purchase. And if that all wasn't enough, Braintree will give you your first $50,000 in transactions absolutely fee-free. So if you're an app developer or a manager, check out Braintree today at braintreepayments.com slash twit. Review their documentation. It's simple and concise. And you get to play around in their sandbox that lets you give Braintree a try with no commitment and test your integration before actually going into production. Once you decide to implement OneTouch, and believe me, you will, your first $50,000 in transactions are fee-free. That's BraintreePayments.com slash twit. And if you've used Airbnb, Uber, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, Fab, or GitHub, let us know what you think about Braintree. Tweet at Braintree. We thank Braintree for their support of twit. Now, Steve, the main event, everyone has been talking about Shellshock. How, how much should they be afraid of this? Is this bigger than Heartbleed? Is this actually going to affect them? Is this just something that system administrators have to worry about? Tell us all about it. Okay. Uh, okay, so let's sort of get a foundation of, of understanding the problem. Um, Unix has... That is, you know, to give some some underpinnings for those who aren't Unix 
developers and hackers and users and and so forth and and understand how this happened. Um, Unix has always taken a sort of a toolkit approach um, involving the invocation of multiple small separate apps. That's just sort of the way that the the Unix culture of development works is you 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 have a bunch of simple capable tools and you you script them together you 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 build up an ad hoc solution to solve a problem um there's sort of two main ways of of communicating between these separate pieces one is to to pass things on the command line either as arguments or so-called piping where you pipe the the output of one of these into the input of the next in sort of a chain and each one processes it in some fashion and then passes it on to the next another convenient means of 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 passing arguments is to to use the so-called environment the 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 environment is is the 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 wrapper around the executable and among other things, the environment can have name, value, pair variables, meaning that that you have a um, a name equals a value, and really extreme flexibility over what the values are and what the names are. Uh, people who have been around for a long time will remember back in the DOS days, uh, like the, the 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 path variable that that tells the operating system which set of directories to look for executable files in um uh you know there there there's a a large set of standard environment variables which the operating system and applications refer to for their own operation but they can also be created on the fly and you, we can think of a sort of like a like a named scratch pad where data can be placed and then another program can be invoked, and it looks in the environment for, for the variables, for, for the parameters and the arguments. Well, the bash shell, which, as you mentioned earlier in the show, um, is um, decades old. It's, it processes the environment when it starts up. It's very. It, it, it's become very powerful over time, and even back then, it, it was it was scriptable. You could write small programs in it. You could use it to invoke other programs. So it could sort of be the hub. Um, one of the things that it could do is is you could define small functions, that is executable functions, in an environment variable. And when Bash started up, it would read in the environment, sort of incorporating it into itself, and in the process, define those functions. So, so in, this, in this sort of toolkit glue approach, one of the things that was done very often in the earlier days was, was as, as we began to to have data submitted by users in this um, um, 
uh, submitted by web users to web servers, um, the so-called CGI was the typical way that, that um, this stands for Common Gateway Interface, was the typical way that a user submission that is, which is always a query, remember, users query the server, the user's query would, would invoke some code running on the server, which would receive the data that the user sent, and whatever that program emitted, whatever it generated, would be the response that would go back to the web page. Well, just because of the design of Unix, these the the various parameters, the headers in the in the in the user's query were put in the environment because that was because in the environment was a convenient way for the CGI script to reference things like the host header and the accepts header and, and, and the various query headers which are used by the operating system, um, or I'm sorry, the, the, the headers that are submitted by the browser and then used by the, the, the CGI side uh, to process the query. So this is the way things sat for several decades until several weeks ago, somebody noticed that when the shell... The, the born shell, uh, which te te technically is, stands for born again. There, there was a born shell, B-O-U-R-N-E. This is the born again shell, B-A-S-H, thus bash. Um, when it is invoked and it sucks in the environment and processes the 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 values of the environment variables that it finds there, it turns out that after it processes a function definition, it continues looking at the balance of the value of the environment variable. And if that's a command, it will execute it. Now, as we talked about at the top of the show, that's not necessarily like a horrible thing. You could imagine back 20 years ago when when the internet wasn't happen you know hadn't happened um that the the designer of this could have thought hey you know I'd like to be able to define a function and then invoke the function. So you can actually do that or could do that. It's not clear today whether that still has survived. Um, you could, at the beginning of the of the environment variables value, have a function definition, uh, you know, open parens, close parens, open curly brace, contents of the function, close curly brace. That's the function definition. But then afterwards, you could refer to the function that you just defined. So you could argue that this never was a bug that this was a feature that the original implementer of this extension to the shell thought, hey, this would be a handy hack. And it no doubt is. And 
it's entirely possible. Just due to the, the, the nature of everything else going on, that this is sort of an obscure, relatively obscure feature of the shell that wasn't being used very often, that nobody just noticed until a few weeks ago that that over time, as the Internet did grow and mature, applications using the Internet continued to also use the shell. That is, maybe began using the shell, and then it was handy. So, I mean, the shell is always there. You uh, on, on a given system, you can count on it. It's the default shell for, for Unix and Linux systems generally. Um, and so because it's there, it's handy. It's, you can count on it. Um, Unix developers just used it. It became one of the tools that internet-connected things took advantage of to do some of their processing. And so the nature of the what became a you know, thought of as a bug, certainly an exploit, although it may have been an exploit by design innocently several decades ago, was the observation that if anything that a user outside of a remote user connected to a server, if anything they did could allow their actions to create values in the environment and, and then either... In, in that same event or subsequently, they could get the, the born shell to be invoked. They could use the fact that even a null function, that is to say, open parens, close parens, open curly brace, semicolon, which is a null statement, close curly brace. That's a null function. But then the balance will be handled like a command. And if they could write that variable and something that they subsequently did invoked the born, the born shell, they were essentially... It, it's hard for me, for me to even say it. They were essentially executing a command of their own design remotely that, with the privileges of the shell, which in many instances are root or much higher than restricted privileges. Yeah, Steve, and so, I, I, have, I, have no, I have no trouble believing that this was a feature. I mean, it, it does sound useful yeah, if uh, yes. I, I put myself back in 1989, 1990. Here's the problem I'm having, which is I know a lot of Unix guys, and they all tell me they never knew about this. So if it was a feature, it was an undocumented feat, undocumented feature, and then a lost feature. Whoever put it in there just never told anybody else about it. I, yeah. You know Unix way better than I do. Do you know anyone who even hinted that this was possible with Bash? No. Um, and subsequent to this coming to light, I've seen people demonstrate the, the utility of it. Um, I think the only way to know 
would and unfortunately it's probably lost now um maybe there are like older copies of the source um certainly source from from before a few weeks ago before the mad patching so yeah obviously there's going to be source around would be to examine the source and see whether this looks like a mistake or whether it looks deliberate cuz this sort of thing you i would think that the source code would tell you whether this that this was a, a feature that the programmer you know like there's a comment that says uh you know upon encountering the 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 closing curly brace you know continue parsing the line for anything else that we need to do with the function we just invoked that would be a comment that the source would have if this were deliberate so uh, I have not looked at the source to answer the question, and I haven't I haven't read anyone anywhere either way saying yay or nay. Wow, wow. Uh, yeah, I, um, I, I I do want to discuss some of the implications. I mean, what does this actually mean? But but before that, uh, let's tease it a little bit because we have to talk about what people are, what companies are doing to protect themselves against this, and what they're doing to protect you, uh, their loyal customers. But I do want to do one more ad, and then I, I want to do some spin right testimonials. Okay, can we do that? Okay, let's do that. Let's do that. But first, we've been talking a lot about security here, uh, specifically with uh, devices that say they're secure, and maybe they are or are not. But you can do one thing: you can take all of this into your own hands and make sure that you understand what it means to secure your device, to make sure that your data is not readable by anybody else, to make sure that you hold all the keys. Well, that's why I'm more than pleased as punch to welcome ProXBN to this episode of Security Now. With ProXBN, you get high-quality encryption on your device of choice. You can have it on your tablet, on your phone, on your laptop, Mac, or PC. Basically, anywhere you compute, you can be protected with ProXBN. Now, more now than ever, your online freedom and privacy are under threat. Governments and ISPs want to control what you can and cannot see while keeping a record of everything that you do. Plus, that free Wi-Fi at the coffee house, that's probably me or my friends trying to figure out the data that you're dumping through a, a network that absolutely has no security. Well, why trust them? Why trust your government? Instead, why not run ProXBN and be connected end to end? Now, I've been using ProXBN the last couple of years uh, just because it's a really easy way to get the security that you want. Whenever I'm in a public Wi-Fi space, be it at a coffee house or at a conference, I'm not going to connect to a Wi-Fi system that other users are connected to. I mean, for example, take take DEFCON or take Black Hat. Well, first of all, you're kind of silly if you're connecting to those networks at all. But if you did need to make a connection through it, you'd be suicidal not to run it through a tunnel. That's what ProXPN lets you do. ProXPN is a global VPN, a virtual private network that works on almost any internet connection. It allows you to create a secure encrypted tunnel through which all of your online data passes back and forth. Any online application can work with ProXPN, including your web browser, your email, your file sharing, and instant messaging programs. ProXPN keeps everything that you do online hidden from prying eyes, disguising your physical location and giving you unfettered access to any website or online service no matter where you live or you travel. Now, here are the parts that will be important to listeners of Security Now. Complete online privacy through a 512-bit encryption tunnel. It works via OpenVPN or PPTP. You get to choose. 
protects you against the your ISP's six strikes rule. It bypasses internet filtering and blocked websites. It bypasses geographical restrictions for internet content and online video with worldwide servers in the U.S., U.K., Asia, and more. Their software for Windows and Mac offers advanced controls. You can select ports to connect at startup and even select which program should be shut down if your anonymous connection is ever interrupted. I found that to be incredibly important because there are a lot of networks that will try to trick you. If you don't have safe browsing set up, say on your XPN client, if they knock off the tunnel, your browser or your service will continue to try to connect to that server even though it's no longer protected, no longer encrypted. ProXPM lets you automatically shut those programs down if you happen to lose your tunnel. Now, ProXPN, of course, works with your iOS, your Android, your Mac, your PC, basically any device, anywhere, anytime. And they've got world-class customer support. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to try ProXPN to see if maybe it's the security choice that you're going to take. Go to ProXPN.com twit for more information and to sign up. ProXPN premium accounts are normally $9.98 a month, but we've got a special offer. If you use the code SN50 at checkout, you'll receive 50% off the monthly price when you sign up for a 12-month subscription. That's less than 5 bucks a month when you sign up for a year, and it's good for the lifetime of your account. If you're not satisfied, you can cancel within 7 days for a full refund. So go to ProXPN.com twit and sign up with the code SN50. ProXPN accepts payments through Visa, PayPal, and now Bitcoin as well. And we thank ProXPN for their support. Security Now. Uh, Steve, we are going to get back to Bash and the vulnerability from uh, that's uh, shell-shocking the world. But before that, uh, let's hear some good news. I want to hear some SpinRight <laughs> testimonials. Well, just one. Um, I, we've been talking about SpinRight and RAID arrays for the last few weeks. And, and in fact, our talking about it has has incented other people who've used SpinRite to successfully recover from raid problems. Um, we talked about one, I think it was last week, where the array fell off the back of the moving truck. It, the good news is it wasn't moving at the time, but the person was moving. Um, in this case, uh, this is sort of a different one. Bob uh, Guarda in uh, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, uh, he said, hey, Stephen Leo, and of course, in this case, Padre, he said, just want to say hello, and then I'm a longtime listener of Security Now, and I'm also a proud owner of Spinrite. As we all know, we computer guys do the support for family and friends, and I'm no exception to this rule. Here's a story for Spinrite, a success story, that is. A friend of mine has a Netgear ReadyNAS network NAS box. When he purchased it, I set it up for him with four drives and RAID 5 configuration. At the time, I told him that this is a very good configuration because should one drive fail, the information is still available. The odds of two drive failing, well, that's super high. This would help in keeping all of his pictures and videos safe. To make it even more safe, I set up the built-in backup utility of the Netgear NAS to do a weekly backup to an external drive connected to a USB port. One morning, he gets an email from the device saying that drive one had failed and that another drive was about to fail. The NAS box had turned itself off for protection. He calls me up in a panic and I tell him no problem. 
The worst scenario is that he has lost, in quotes, one week of work. He then admits that the backup had not worked in months. He kept forgetting to tell me. Yikes. He contacted Netgear for help, and after a valiant effort from both their level two and level three support at Netgear, the, in quotes, solution, was to get a data recovery company to save his data. It appeared that drive one, two, and three were all dead. When he inquired at a local data recovery establishment, cost was $3,000 starting, no guarantees. Yikes, <laughs> he writes. Then I recommended, that, oh, he says, then I remembered that Spinrite does not care what the file format is on the drive, be it NTFS, FAT32, Mac OS, Linux, or RAID. It does its magic. So I said to my friend, you have nothing to lose since you already lost it. He agreed and let me attempt to save his data. So I did drive one, three, and four at level two, at Spinrite level two. Drive two was giving me the click of death and the computer would not recognize the drive. I figured, well, it's supposed to be RAID 5. If I save the other drives, the Netgear box should rebuild. I replaced drive 2 with a new drive and placed the freshly spin-righted, he says, parens, a new word, drives back into the NAS enclosure. I powered up the unit and voila, the RAID started to rebuild. After the RAID finished rebuilding, all of his work files and most importantly, the videos and pictures of his two kids were available. Thank you, Steve, for making such a great product. And keep up the great work you do with Leo with Security Now, one of the best sources of security information there is out there. Thanks, Bob, in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. And uh, so, yeah, even having a RAID, uh, as we've been talking about, isn't isn't often enough protection. If more than one drive dies, in, th in this case, three died. I guess, no, all of them died. Spinrite was able to fix all of them that were still even willing to get online, and that was enough to rebuild the RAID and get this guy's data back. That's, so I, I, I didn't know it worked for RAIDs. Uh, I actually have. We have a little oh, Netgear ReadyNAS over there, an NV+, that uh, I got to give it a go because its, it's drives died, uh, and yep. I just I kind of threw it away. I'm like, ah, I didn't want to deal with this. I, I, I want to see if Spinrite will get it back because I, I completely forgot that it doesn't look at the OS. It doesn't care what's on the drive. It's actually just looking to see if it could read sectors. It's going sector by sector and saying, exactly. if I can't read this, move it someplace else. Yep. That's fantastic. And, and it, it does recovery enough that you can get things back in order to recover your data. So, yeah. whew. Although I, I have to say, uh, you know, he was saying his friend received an email from the RAID array essentially saying, yeah, I'm dead. That's not what happened. I, I know the ReadyNAS system pretty well. It would have been sending him constant emails saying, hey, look, the error count is going up. You, you uh, really should probably do something about this. <laughs> and then when like his friend was a little being, was being a little negligent all, all, all along. Right, which, which just goes to show you we could have all the tech in place to make sure that this stuff is redundant. But if we're lazy about it, it doesn't matter how well, redundant it is. It's going to fail. You know, and and that's why I'm able to 
you know, have blinky lights behind me and a couple employees to answer customers' questions. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's what's made my life possible is people almost always wait too late. You know, few people, you know, the, the problem is they turned the drive on day before yesterday. It was fine. They turned their computer on yesterday. It was fine. They turned it on today, dead. And I mean, so, so really preventative maintenance has been demonstrated to, to, to be fully useful on hard drives, but people generally don't do it. They wait until it's too late. And I'm, you know, I get to be the hero which I'm really glad for. And as I've said before, I don't mind if someone, you know, helps helps a friend out when they're in need. Uh, there are plenty of people with hard drives in the world and, and uh, you know, we'll be fine. But I just like to have our listeners protected. And I have to say, uh, a lot of people will balk at, oh, $89 for something I'll use only once. No, no, it's $89 for something you're going to use on your worst day, at least up to that well, point. Well, and actually for the rest of their lives. I mean, Spinrite is about 25 years old now. Uh, we honor upgrades even from version 1.0. Uh, everybody knows that as soon as I get finished with Squirrel, I'm going back to Spinrite 6.1 and then probably moving on to 7. So, you know, the purchase you make, will, will you can use it on all the machines you own uh, now and for the future, I'm going to keep it alive. I think I have a version three. I may need to update that. It's been a couple <laughs> of years. <laughs> oh, and by the way, okay. if, if you ever use it on someone's computer that has gone completely dead, they will think you're magic and they will wonder what this wonderful tool is that you've used. Uh, that's right. You get, you get to be the hero and the guru and then I'm your hero. All right. All right so we've had our dose of good news. Thank you. After all the vulnerabilities, after the bash bunch we, we, we got a little dose of happiness, so drop us back into the sadness. Okay, so what I found really interesting was the, the industry's understanding of this. The grasp was instantaneous. Invariably, we were going to see the press comparing this to Heartbleed because Heartbleed was, you know, is relatively recent. It's the, la the last most recent big bad thing that happened. And so people were saying, oh, is this better or worse? Or, you know, how does this compare to Heartbleed? And the answer is it, it doesn't compare at all. The way to think about Heartbleed is that there was some concern that if a hacker tried really, really, really hard, really fast for a long time, they might end up capturing a buffer that contained some sensitive keying information from a server. When the, after the initial announcement of the discovery of this potential buffer overflow, there were, there were security researchers who said the region of memory that you capture is unlikely to contain anything. So, so Cloudflare, among others, they, they, they put up a couple test servers and said, see whether you can crack this. The answer was yes. They, they were, uh, they, hackers were able to obtain keys after a lot of hard work. Um, they got lucky. And in fact, there was another exploit. I'm, not, I'm forgetting which one it was. But a few weeks ago, we talked about one that was big and bad and was believed to have been another another exploit of Heartbleed against 
that organization, a machine at that organization. As I remember, it was it was a router. It wasn't a main server. It was something in their network, that, like a VPN server or something. But something was exposed to Heartbleed, um, and keys were extracted. Oh yeah, it, it, they were able to get VPN authentication keys and then get onto their network and then perform the intrusion that way. So, okay, so that's the nature of that. This is completely different. This is, this is, if you find a server that is vulnerable and it's trivial to find them, you basically, you, you can send them pings with your own IP address and it will ping you. And when you get pinged, you know, oh, I just found a, I just, I just executed a ping command on a remote web server. I can execute any command I want. Consequently, this thing got a 10 out of 10 on severity, a 10 out of 10 on impact, a 10 out of 10 on exploitability. A, 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 the access vector was remote network, the worst it could be. The complexity was low, the worst it could be. The authentication, none required. I mean, across the board, this was red. I mean, this was this was unbelievably bad. And whereas when Heartbleed first was was announced, you know, everyone sort of said, "Oh, that doesn't sound good. We know buffer overflows are not good, you know, but we're not sure you're going to get anything of any value." Well, and then it took a while for you know two people to demonstrate. Oh, we tried for a week and a hundred thousand, you know billion gazillion queries at as fast as we could make them and we captured some keys this is you know i basically set out some probes and three thousand servers replied and that was only in a small piece of the internet that i chose to check and i could have executed any command with relatively high privilege on any of those servers i mean this is night and day amazingly bad and my my very favorite my favorite very favorite hack is one that the guys at FireEye found. They looked at their blogs and posted a number of the 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 so-called techniques that they saw. My favorite is a is a no malware reverse shell. You you send a query to a web server. Uh, which is just get slash CGI hyphen bin slash. So you're just, you're you're making a query at the root of the CGI bin directory. Oftentimes, something is there to, to pick up the query and run. You give it a specially formed, you, the query uh, gets a specially formed user agent string, meaning that the CGI interface will take the user agent header in this fake query of yours, stick it as an environment variable called user hyphen agent, and then the and then the value. And then what, what you give it is a command. It's not common knowledge, which is to say many people are unaware of the fact that Bash actually has built-in commands for sending and receiving network traffic. You need no other software to be installed on the system. Bash itself can send and receive network traffic. This simple command 
causes it to to open essentially a reverse shell to the IP you provide on the port you provide. So you're an attacker. You you open a terminal session listening on a port. You send this command to a remote machine causing its bash shell to connect to you on this port in interactive, dash I means interactive mode, and you now have an interactive session with the, the, the root shell in this remote machine, and it works. And, and, and not only does it work, it's really easy to make it work. It's, yeah. it's a, it, there are a lot of hacks that require timing, luck, and uh, more than a little bit of skill. This is, as you said, if you send out pings, you can find a bunch of vulnerable, vulnerable machines, throw the code at all the machines and see which ones respond and start up that interactive session, and you're in. You're essentially sitting at the keyboard. You have the dream, yes, you have the dream of every hacker in the on the planet, which is an interactive command line inside the heart of a server, a remotely located server that you just got access to. So you can do anything you want. You poke around, you you start sending all the log files and the passwords file and you know, I mean it's just it's unbelievable. Yeah, this is not Heartbleed where, okay, I, I might be able to capture some of the communications. Maybe I'll even get a credential that will let me in. This is, no, I, I'm not <laughs> waiting for you to do something stupid. I can just take this over. This is not a back door. This is a front door. This is door. the front door. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the thing that gets me about this story is, uh, as you said, it's got legs. This, if if I were still doing anything questionable... This would be the entry point for an advanced persistent threat. Yes, um, so I wouldn't use it right away. I, I would just make sure that I'm I'm deep enough in the system. I've got enough uh, um, uh, privileges that I'll be able to exploit something later on when I want to. That's what I would I would be doing a rush to get into every system before it gets patched. So, yes, now we know the nature of of the problem. Here's the here's the the reason this thing has legs is it it is it is it has breadth and depth the problem is that there is a vast ecosystem of stuff on the internet of course famously the internet of things now the iot devices tend to be much leaner than you know big iron servers so and and bash because it has all these capabilities is a big shell. There are much smaller shells which tend to be more often used in consumer routers and you know unfortunately in light bulbs and switches and 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 things. But there's all sorts of other stuff. For example, there we know that webcams use the bash shell for to essentially make their little web server. They've got little brain, brain, I don't want to say brain dead, but I started to say it. Simple, simple-minded, simple-minded web servers just written in bash script. So webcams that, that will, that, that you can connect to can probably be taken over. I'm not sure how, what you could do with them, 
but you don't want your webcam taken over. The point is that 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 the shell is universally omnipresent and there are all kinds of things globally sitting on the internet connected and it has been the habit of developers to who are just putting together a quick hack for one thing or another to use the shell and to use some of these powerful features without understanding and the problem is a lot of this stuff gets baked into products it gets baked into firmware or that was 10 years ago and the developer who knows that's what he did is gone on to greener pastures he's moved on to other companies yet this stuff is sitting there on ports waiting for connections open to exploit not just port 80 not just 23 not just you know the the common ones but appliance ports and and random function ports the problem is this is just is just scattered throughout the infrastructure the deep infrastructure of the internet and that's why this is why we're going to be encountering this issue i predict for years to come it's going to take a long time for this to drain out of the internet uh, I mean, and to some degree, it never will. There's going to be an Internet support group for IT administrators who are tr- <laughs> right now. They're trying to think of every box they have sitting in a server, every forgotten uh, piece of equipment that they haven't patched. They haven't updated in the longest time because they never thought it was important. Because I guarantee you, I if I go through my inventory, I can't remember every box I might have that has this vulnerability. Yeah. It, it's it's I mean, imagine how far back this tool goes. That's yeah. how much time there has been to forget that you're using this on a box that's now going to become a, a vector for infection of your network. Yeah, I mean, it, um, in fact, the intrusion detection systems immediately updated their patterns trying to look for this open parens, closed paren, open curly brace, not much inside, closed curly brace pattern and, and you know, catch it at the border. The problem is there are many ways of obscuring that and other ways to get this in. And so it's, it, it's in, in general, I mean, that's it, better to have that than not by all means have that, but you just, you can't count on it. And there are doubtless devices that are not behind I, I, IDSs. <laughs> I know. Actually, I was just thinking about that. I have, I have a few IDSs running in Brian Chi's Colo right now that I'm pretty sure have this bash vulnerability. Now that would be ironic. <laughs> Someone just owned yeah. my IDS. <laughs> uh, St- Steve, is there any good news? Is there some good news about this? I, I mean, of course, people have been applying patches, and the patches have worked like gangbusters, right? Yes. Um, that well, okay. So the very first patch came out and didn't solve the problem. Then. This is one of the neatest things about open source. What I love about open source, I think more than anything else, is what happened this past week. Yes, it's unfortunate that this thing sat for two decades, and no matter how many eyes were looking at it, nobody was looking at this particular aspect to see the problem. So we could argue that, that open source 
And, and I mean, this is not the first time we've seen a failure of open source. I mean, you know, the Heartbleed vulnerability itself was introduced two years ago by a well-meaning programmer making a change that where he didn't do a range check and should have. So even the fact that it was the fact that it was open didn't protect that from happening. What I love about open source was the pile-on effect because everybody on the net simultaneously had access to the source of bash in in mass you know multitasking everybody attacked it at once and so within hours this thing was was remediated and and immediately fixed now the initial fix had a problem that that it could be worked around and then people began bashing on bash essentially really pounding on it hard using fuzzers in order to find other things that would get through and they did there were several other remote code execution vulnerabilities found so essentially an an, an aspect of the internet that had never received adequate focus suddenly got massive attention and in a series of vulnerability patches got tightened up very quickly. And so, I mean, this, for example, as opposed to announcing a vulnerability, you know, telling Microsoft about a vulnerability and six months later, nothing has apparently happened, despite the fact that it's there and anybody else has been able to do it. You know, that's the beauty, I think, of of the environment, the open source culture that we have today is that there's a huge number of really smart guys. And boy, you, you show them something like this and you really get their attention. It's like, oh, because everyone's got their own self-interest in mind. They're like, oh, my God, this affects me. And so, you know, I want to understand it. As as a Windows person, a person who spends most of his day in Microsoft Windows, let me reach out to my fellow Windows users, users and say, look, don't be that guy. I, uh, well, I know there's a few of you who love the fact that this seems to be hitting the open source community. But as, as Steve says, just don't be smug. Don't be a jerk. Oh, uh, Windows users have no. <laughs> no <laughs> we, well, exactly. <laughs> we, 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 our pride has been smashed out of us long time ago. Security now spends 51 days of the year on Windows and one week of uh, the year. Well, actually, I'm messed up with weeks and days. You know what? I, I, that's that. I think you've Unix, just bashed you, my the head. Unix problem, the Unix problems are the exciting ones, I think, they, because they tend to be, you know, breathtaking problems, whereas the Windows ones are, oh, okay, you know, we found a problem with the font parser over here, and so we patched it. It's like We're kind of desensitized okay. to Windows yeah, vulnerabilities. Yeah, but boy, I tell you, those, be there. The, the, the open source Unix things, ooh, those are a lot of fun. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's a place where you'll find Spinrite, the world's greatest maintenance and repair tool. You'll also find 16 kilobit versions of this episode, transcripts, and, of course, some great information about security, everything from Squirrel to Bash to whatever Mr. Gibson has been working on. You'll also find an active forum for community members to discuss things like, well, what is the best way to hide in the sand now that all these exploits have come out in the open? If you have a question, you can always submit them at grc.com slash feedback. And maybe your question will be used on a future episode of Security Now. You can find all the versions of Security Now at our show page at twit.tv slash SN for Security Now and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. 
You can also use our apps or watch us live. We gather every Tuesday, well, normally a Tuesday. Today it's a Wednesday, 1 p.m. Pacific time, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC at live.twit.tv. I'm Father Robert Ballister in for Leo Laporte. Steve Gibson, thank you so very much for fueling our nightmares. And until next time, <laughs> be secure. Great, Padre. Thanks. Secure.